Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Brandy Colbert is the award-winning author of Little and the Lion, Point, Finding Yvonne, The Revolution of Bertie Randolph, and Only Black Girls in Town. Her short fiction and essays have been published in several critically acclaimed anthologies for young people. She's on faculty at Hamlin University's MFA program in writing for children and lives in Los Angeles. I'm given to understand that she still tap dances sometimes too, which maybe some will have desire to ask about later. Um, uh, we're excited to have in conversation with Brandy, another superstar, you know, LaCour, um, who is the author of the widely acclaimed Hold Still, The Disenchantments, and Everything Leads to You, and the Michael L. Prince Award winner, We Are Okay. She's also the co-author with David Levithan of You Know Me Well. Formerly a bookseller and high school English teacher, she now writes and parents full-time. A San Francisco Bay Area native, Nina lives with her family in Martinez, California, in the East Bay. Uh, so the book we're here to celebrate today is The Voting Booth. Uh, and just briefly, but yes, <laughs> there. Uh, and I'll say this, and then I'm sure you'll hear much more of substance from um, our writer. Uh, but in brief, on a whirlwind day that Marva Sheridan, who has always been driven to make a difference in the world, spends Duke Crenshaw, who just wants to get voting over with so he can prepare for his band's first paying gig tonight. The two of them rush from precinct to precinct, cut school, wait in endless lines, and get turned away time and again, trying to do one simple thing, vote. Romantic and triumphant, the voting booth is proof that you can't sit around waiting for the world to change. And without further ado, I'm going to turn it over uh, to Brandy. Let's have a warm sort of like spiritual beaming across the waves. Welcome. <laughs> Snap, finger wave. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. Hi. <laughs> Um, so I was going to read a little bit from the book and then um, I think that Nina and I will chat after that. All right, so this is my first time reading from the book and it's funny because I write at home and um, I feel like I don't write outside of my home because I'm always reading my work out loud and I don't want people to laugh at me in public. Um, so this feels very natural to be reading this out loud at home, but it is the first time in front of an audience. All right, so I'm going to start from the third chapter, and this is a dual point of view book. So um, I'm going to start with Marva's chapter, which is the third one. And she is in the line at the polls. I can't believe how long this line is. I don't care how nerdy I look. I can't stop the giant smile that's spreading across my face as more and more people join behind me. I'm at the very front, of course armed with my first copy of the day and my completed sample ballot, though I know all the candidates and measures I'm choosing by heart. I'll be in and out in 10 minutes. 
I have this so perfectly timed that I'll still go to get to school with 20 minutes to spare. I check my phone, but still no text from my boyfriend, Alex. What the hell? I guess technically it's my turn to respond, but what he's doing is unacceptable. How can he just change like this when he's been my boyfriend for more than two years? I glance behind me to see how, how the line is shaping up. It's mostly people my parents' age, but there are a few younger ones too. No other high school kids though. I'd like to think that's because they're all coming after school, but I'm not that naive. All that time I spent canvassing, phone banking, and text banking made it crystal clear just how many people want nothing to do with implementing change in the world. The guy about a dozen people back might be my age. He's so tall though, it's hard to tell. He has light brown skin, close cropped reddish brown hair, and big hands that keep drumming a rhythm on his thighs. He's wearing giant black headphones, and I wonder what he's listening to as I turn back around. The front door to the church opens, and a gray-haired woman with a sunny smile props it wide with the doorstop. Morning, folks, and happy election day. The polls are officially open. I swear I get the chills. The woman behind the check-in table greets me with a smile and points me to the voting booth. I stop and stare. It's not the first time I've been in one. I've gone with mom and dad several times over the years, but this is all me my decisions, my chance to try to change the things I'm sick and tired of, just like my hero, Fannie Lou Hamer. Everything okay? Asks the woman sporting an auburn braid that trails over her shoulder. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. I sip from my coffee and smile. I'm just so excited to be here. This is my first time voting. She smiles back. Good on you doing your part. Oh, lady, if you only knew. I step into the booth and take a deep breath to orient myself in this moment, but also to take in every part of the voting experience. It smells musty. I insert my ballot like the woman instructed and flip open the guide. All the propositions and candidates are there, just like I memorized weeks ago. But I can't help going through each one to make sure the issues I'm really here for are still there. Things my parents say this country has been fighting over for decades. Healthcare, gun control, climate change, social justice, things that should have been solved decades ago. I take my time to read each paragraph and carefully fill in the circles on my ballot, a surge of pride coursing through me with each vote I make. I don't know how Alec can say this doesn't matter. When I'm done, a woman with round glasses takes my ballot and feeds it into the machine. Thank you for voting, he says, handing me a giant sticker that says I voted. I immediately peel it off, press it over my heart and say, thank you. I must have taken longer than I thought because the guy with the headphones is standing at the check-in desk talking to the red braid woman. His headphones are looped around his neck now. The woman scans the list all the way from top to bottom, page to page until she gets to the end. She looks up at him and shakes her head. Sorry, she says, her face sincerely full of apology. You're not on the list. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I love that chapter. I love Marva so much. I love Duke so much and I love this book. It has been <laughs> such a pleasure to spend a few days reading it. And I was just, um, yeah, it made me so happy even as it grapples with such serious things. And so that's part of what I want to talk about today is oh, thank you. how those all work together. So first, Brandy Colbert, will you um, tell us a little bit more about Marva and Duke? Yeah, so Marva and Duke are like these two complete opposites. Um, they Marva is really driven, as you can tell from that chapter I read. She's literally been waiting for this day since she learned what voting was. Um, and she just knows that she can make a difference, um, you know, like canvassing, phone banking, all those things uh, she mentioned, but especially like she's really, really ready to get her vote in. Um, she's big into 
you know, black history, which is essentially American history, but she's big into, you know, the history of her black ancestors and just really like working for equality and, and change in the world, similar, you know, to what we're going through in the real world here. Um, Duke is also, you know, very focused on, he's focused on the right thing, but he's, I would say a little lazier than Marva. He's pretty laid back. Um, he plays in a band, um, but he's also still grieving. His older brother died a couple years ago and his family moved and then his parents got a divorce. And so he's been going through all of these changes and his brother was a really big uh, political activist in their hometown and he was killed uh, by a shooting and they still don't know who did it. Nobody was charged with it. Um, and even though he was like fighting for gun rights and um, just to change all of that um, in the black community. So yeah, they're pretty different. And then they meet, uh, you know, in the line, he's the guy with the headphones that she was just talking about or just had noticed. And he gets turned away from the voting booth because of registration problems. And then um, they set off on their day of getting to know each other and, and trying to get the vote and like talking about a lot of stuff in between. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was how, you know, it's a, it's a dual perspective. The dual narrators switch back and forth pretty rapidly, which gives the whole book this like amazing clip. And, you know, you never get nothing ever gets bogged down. It like keeps moving in such a, a wonderful way. Um, and I, I really like how we learn about both of their pasts and how um, Dukes is a little bit more focused on family and Marvez is a little more focused on this relationship that she's struggling with a bit more on that soon. Um, <laughs> but the, yeah, the, the, the partnering of those narratives work so well for me. I, I just enjoyed it all. So oh, thank you. I have tons more to say about the book, but first I wanted to ask you a personal question because it is a book about their first time voting. And I wanted to know about your, own experience with voting like do you remember the first time you voted what was it like for you um yeah, yeah. or just even how voting maybe the meaning of voting maybe has changed over the years for you i don't know right yeah i should have actually um probably done <laughs> the math before i started <laughs> talking about this book <laughs> um so yeah but i believe i missed the cutoff of the 98 presidential election by like a year um yeah i was still I couldn't vote in that election. So the first one I voted for was, um, I think it was 98. And then um, anyway, the first one I voted for was, um, I think with Al Gore when he yeah, ran. So like, yeah. okay, so it was like either, I guess it was like 2001, 2000. 2000, 2000. Okay, yeah. so not 98. And then I missed um, whatever the one was before that, I missed it by like a year. Um, so I didn't get to vote until I was almost, uh, until I, I turned 21. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, I don't remember necessarily like feeling super excited <laughs> about it, but I was definitely like knew I was doing my duty. Like I knew it was something I had to do. I don't remember my parents necessarily like talking to me in earnest and being like, you have to go vote in this election specifically. But it was just sort of like known that that was what I was going to do. And they said it's just, you know, always important to vote in elections. Um, and um yeah, I don't remember much about the experience. I wish I did, but it was in Missouri, and I'm sure that I voted against the majority of what people in Missouri were voting for at the time. So, yeah, yeah, that's so interesting because as I was reading, I saw so much of you in Marva. It's <laughs> more like Duke, like Duke's the one whose family is like, you have to do this, right? Like it's instilled by the family, and he's like, okay, you know. And then as the day goes on, it becomes more and more important to him. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah. Little. 
that's funny yeah i definitely have some type a like marva like she's way more organized um like i don't know just organized in her whole life more than i am but um yeah there's definitely a lot of me in her too <laughs> <laughs> um okay so i want to talk about um this idea of democracy <laughs> we're starting with all the serious stuff <laughs> i know um, just the so easy questions Right, yeah. Um, okay, so Duke and Marva, as you said, they meet on the morning of voting day, and Marva is, of course, first in line, which is perfect for her character. And um, Duke isn't far behind her, but when he's turned away from the polls, he isn't too worked up at first, you know, but Marva is suddenly, um, in Duke's words, she's desperate. Like, he's just been turned away, like this <laughs> random stranger, a few people down from her has been turned away. And um, she reacts with desperation and she asks him a series of questions. And um, the, the last question she asks is, don't you care about democracy? And, <laughs> you know, when I read that, I, I totally laughed out loud. I think, as, I, as you know, because I was texting you through the whole thing, I think this book is, it just has so much wonderful humor in it. Um, Thank you. But as, you know, as I thought about it more and as the story continues, like it really is a valid question, right? Like if you can't vote, like he's registered to vote and he's turned away here and and it is a question of democracy. And I love how Marva's conviction um, and the importance that she places on Duke's like single vote, you know, this one vote mm -hmm. is so steadfast because it shows how real and damaging voter suppression is. And, um, you know, it's using one character to, to show the, the plight of many people trying to get to the polls, especially in black communities. And so knowing that you were gonna write a novel that had to do with voter suppression, what kind of research did you do going into it or what what um, you know, what inspired you in, in this moment or in the past? There are also great references, you know, to Fannie Lou Hamer and um, we'll get more about Eartha Kitt in a bit. <laughs> but, um, what, what did you turn to in order to? Um, yeah, I feel like with a lot of my books, um, when I'm asked about the research, it's it's like I'm always doing research, but I guess a lot of things I write about are things that I've, I've already been interested in for a while. So I think, um, I don't remember when I first heard about Fannie Lou Hamer. I think I was one day like, you know, uh, who came up with that like saying, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm -hmm. And then I started researching and I was like, Fannie Lou Hamer, who's that? And then I was shocked to know that she was like, you know, a really big integral part of voting rights um, in Mississippi, particularly um, like back in the 60s. And it was really amazing to me that I had never learned about her in history class. And so one of my favorite things is going down like internet rabbit holes um, <laughs> and just like researching history just on like, you know, a Tuesday night um, just because. Um, so I'm pretty sure that's how I sort of got into it. And then I'm also interested um, because my family's from the South. So my parents grew up in rural Arkansas um, in like farm families, like picking cotton in the fifties and sixties. Um, and, you know, a lot of racism there, a lot of racial violence. Um, I, I don't know about their particular experiences um, there because they moved um, out of Arkansas like as like older teenagers. Um, they got married young. So I don't know if they ever actually voted there. But I, you know, I know that the South itself uh, was really difficult area with a lot of, um, you know, violence and sometimes like death just for people trying to get to vote and, you know, poll taxes and literacy tests and just so many unfair things that just denying people their right to vote. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I've always been interested in that. And so it was really like, 
don't want to say fun because it's not like a fun topic, but it was really cool to be able to write a character who cares about those things and knows her history as a teenager because I knew it was important to vote. And I knew sort of vaguely that like black people had had issues voting in the past, like especially in the South. Um, but I didn't know the full history about that until I was an adult. So I thought it was really cool to write a teenager who was more informed than me or really yeah. any of my friends back in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I When I was reading it, I felt like I was experiencing the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial election with Stacey Abrams like over again. Like even though that's not, you don't go into any specifics in your book or anything, but I just like... Right thought about all of the news footage and all of the photographs and listening to the radio and just that like feeling of this can't be right. Like, how is this still happening? You know, now, like, it's just such a, such a huge problem. I'm so inspired by the work that she's doing. Um, Me too. Yeah. It seems like that is kind of where, um, if we're going to focus resources and, and stuff like that, like making sure everybody can vote seems like one of the purest and most, you know, just, um, necessary ways of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So, <clears throat> of course, this is the story of a blossoming romance between Duke and Marva. You can tell by the cover, it's not a spoiler. Skip <laughs> 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 it away. <laughs> um, but there's a character who complicates things a bit for them. And I'm thinking about Alec, of course, who is Marva's current boyfriend. So, when the, the story begins, um, so Alec is white. He has a bunch of blind spots. He also has a lot of gaps in his knowledge about Black history in America. There's a great discussion on Juneteenth in the book, which was so wonderful. <laughs> I kind of ever read, you know, in a book, a summary of Juneteenth and, and what it means to a character's family. So I, I really loved that. Um, and even beyond like his blind spots and the things that he genuinely just doesn't know about, he also has these ways in which he just really fails Marva. And of course, the first one that we learn about is how he's not planning on voting in this election. That means so much to her and is so important. And she brings up the point, you know, a few times over the course of the novel that you have to vote for other people, not just for yourself, you know, and she has much more to lose than Alec has to lose for him, for his apathy or whatever. Um, but the incident that really stands out the most to me with Alec is the one that has to do with college. And um, yeah, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So Marva had um, a really horrible experience with racism at a prestigious college over the summer during a pre-college program that she attended. And at the time, Alec was sympathetic to her, right? Like when it was just him and her talking, but he ends up applying to that school anyway. And he doesn't feel like her experience there should impact his own decision-making. And I'm, I'm quoting um, from the book. He says, you know, I care about how you're treated and I know things are different for you than they are for me, that you deal with shit I'll never have to experience in my life. But I have to do this just to see if they'd even take me. I'll never forgive myself if I don't. And that felt to me like I was so mad at him. And I also, <laughs> but I also saw like that is such a true and typical reaction because it's like one thing for him to object to what Marva was subjected to there and another thing for him to like 
realize that it's part of his work to do to help dismantle that racism in that institution. And that if it's an institution that sanctions that, he's still upholding the system that is designed to hurt her and all black people in America. So I was super mad at him. <laughs> good. <laughs> I wondered just, you know, in reading this, I, you, you do such a good job in, in all of your books. And as you know, I've read all of your books and love them. Um, of talking about racism in these ways that are so day-to-day -day and insidious and damaging and yet like, you know, commonplace and things that like so many people would justify that. Like, oh, I'm sorry, like that, that, that like part of that institution was harmful, but that's not really how the college feels or like, look at all the good the college does or, or, you know, different justifications like that to make their own life easier and to not have to question their own dreams. So yeah, all of that to say, I wonder how you landed on that specific type of racism, that specific type of racism to explore in this book, um, the kind that comes from people who claim to care and to be allies, but still act in this kind of way that really, you know, undermines everything that they say. Yeah, um, gosh, I mean, I feel like how I grew up and, and where I grew up was sort of like, I don't know, it felt like I was just talking to a friend last night who I think is watching this. Hello, Shannon. Um, I think that I kind of grew up with that like insidious, like microaggressions, like constant, like, well, we like you, you're, you're a great black person, but like, that's you, you're a special type of black person. You're not like those other black people. And so it just felt like a lot of those little digs and those little types of things um, that people would say to me, just, you know, microaggressions or like, or, you know, on, on, I don't even say the flip side, but just also questioning like things that I would experience because a lot of times for me growing up in like a town that was 3% black and almost, you know, exclusively white, mm -hmm. there wasn't anyone else for me to talk to and to ask about these things, except mm -hmm. like my parents and, you know, my parents are great and they definitely talked to us about race and were really honest with us um, and always made us proud of being black. But like at the same time, you know, they didn't always have time to get into it with like their kids about, you know, things they were dealing with with their friends. and just also knowing how they grew up. I'm like, gosh, what I'm dealing with is nothing compared to that. But it is like sort of another phase of it. Um, and I, when I moved to California, um, I moved right after college. So I went to school in my hometown in Missouri. And then I moved to LA when I was like 22. Um, and I remember thinking like, well, it's going to be like so different here. You know, like, it's going to be a lot of like super liberal people who like really get it and like really understand. And you know, for the most part, it really is. And I, I love it here. Um, but there's also sort of what I call like a hipster racism mm -hmm. um, in a way that's just like people being like, well, I'm cool, you know, with with black people and, and blackness. But then a lot of those little like choices like Alec would make to like, but it's still about about him. And they don't understand that these little ways that they're upholding, you know, a, I mean, for lack of a better term, a white supremacist, you know, um, political structure like it just or societal structure um that I guess they don't understand that little things they say and do add up to become the norm and then bigger things snowball from that I, I don't know if I'm making sense totally but um yeah yeah so I just feel like I kind of grew up with that and then again was still exposed to a lot of that in my early 20s um and then that was when I started doing a lot of reading uh, you know black authors and just like scholars and journalists and finding the language to say to people, you know, this is harmful. Like you shouldn't, you know, talk like this or you shouldn't believe this. Or if you believe in equality, you should also believe this too, or you should take this type of stand. Um, it's not always easy to talk to people about that. And 
you know, I'm pretty unfiltered anyway in real life. But uh, <laughs> but even for me, it's like it can be a little hard to tell people that what they've said to you is wrong and hurtful and also part of a larger problem. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think about the Juneteenth scene again, too. Yeah. <laughs> Marva and... Um, I mean, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it's a it's a wonderful scene, and I felt really like Marva was like it was such a, a act of bravery and like a powerful statement for her to to defend her stance about holidays and to share about Juneteenth with the people who she is sharing it um, with in that scene. So everyone is is in for a treat when you get there. I, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so speaking of um, wonderful Black people in America, let's talk about <laughs> Kitty, both in her feline form and in her <laughs> the, the yes. inspiration. Yeah, um, so Eartha Kitt, um, oh, so there's a cat in the book um, who is on the back. Um, can't see her very well. Probably need to turn on another light in here, to be honest. Uh, it's like sunset. I'm not used to doing um, events like in the evening on the West Coast because we always have to do East Coast time. So this is nice, but I forgot about the light. Anyway, that is Eartha Kitty. Um, so her name is Selma um, in you know real life. She's Marva's cat. Um, but then Marva sort of like stumbled onto making this Instagram account for her cat and gave her like this whole identity. And now she's like super famous. And her internet name is Eartha Kitty. Um, so she kind of gave Marva something to focus on besides like academics. And, you know, Marva had a really tough year, um, her freshman year when she transferred to this private school where she met Alec. Um, she's one of the only black students and she just felt really like out of place the whole time. Um, so she, her mom brings home like this cat and she like instantly bonds with this cat and she loves cats. Like I love cats, mm -hmm. um, except she says that they're not cat people. And I'm like very much a cat person, even though I don't have one. Um, mm -hmm. But she names her Eartha Kitty, and I think her, um, yeah, her father suggested it, and she was kind of like, Eartha Kitt, like, why would I name a cat after Eartha Kitt? Like, she was just, like, sure, she was Catwoman, you know, she was just, like, the sex symbol, like, why would I do that when her real name is Selma, you know, which stands for something, you know, to her. Um, and then she started doing some research on Eartha Kitt, and was like, wait a minute, like, this woman was incredible, like, she was a sex symbol, and she was, like, super talented, and, you know, beautiful, and a singer, talented singer, actress. Um, all of that, but like she also was really super political and like stood up for the rights of, you know, not only black people, but like other members of other communities. Um, it was just really outspoken. Um, as Marva says in the book at one point, like, I believe she was on like the CIA's like list, watch list yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so she just, she was like super badass. And I didn't realize that honestly, like, I think I kind of made the same. Marva's not me totally, but you know, I like her, I did sort of make that mistake. Um, of just thinking, you know, um, looking back at Eartha Kitt and thinking she was like this one thing. And it's like, no, like, you know, we all contain multitudes and, mm -hmm. and a lot of black, um, I feel like especially back when in Hollywood, when it was even harder to be like a black actor, uh, black actors and actresses were so, were like, so act such activists, like practice such activism, um, you know, on and off the screen. And she was definitely like one of those people and someone to really look up to. Yeah, yeah. And um, I just Eartha Kitty slash Selma in the book. <laughs> so wonderful. I mean, it's just, as I keep saying, like, it's a serious book with so much like comic relief and so much delight <laughs> in it. And all of the descriptions of this famous, this inner Instagram famous cat and all of her different like positions. And then that the cat started getting political in anticipation. <laughs> 
of the, of the election was, was just so brilliant. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, so wonderful. All right. Um, oh, and also I, I typed up this quote because I really loved it because it also, it's such a beautiful way of um, helping with Marva's characterization too, like the way that she thinks of this cat and, and she says, it would be like breaking the fourth wall, admitting that Selma is still a regular cat who does regular things like try to run away. Part of the attraction is the illusion of her being perfect in an almost otherworldly feline. <laughs> <laughs> Marva too like has this sense of how she should present herself. And um, yeah, I just. Okay. Yeah, she's definitely projecting through her cat. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, and then I feel like I'm I'm talking so much about Marva, but I have lots to say about Duke too. And then cool. I know we have questions and and all that, so I won't keep keep you talking forever. But um, it's okay, I love it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the the other more serious, you know, very serious scenes in the novel is um, something that happens towards the end. So I don't want to give too much away, but it does have um, Duke kind of cast back and think about. Um, Julian, his older brother who was killed, and his father. And um, there's this passage here that says, my brother never did grow as tall as me, but he'd always been a big kid, always looked older than his age. Dad told him that people would look at him as older no matter his size, that to a lot of people, black boys never really get to be boys. He told Julian that if he was stopped by a cop, by foot or by car, he was never to talk back. And you know, of course, police violence against black people has nothing new at all. But with the um, rise in consciousness and in awareness and as like, I mean, who knew when you were um, getting ready to publish this book that this would be like coming out in a time when people are talking about defunding the police and yeah. like drastically reimagining what police should be there for and and um, if they should be there at all, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things. Like, um, what does it mean to you now to kind of look back at, at that passage? Like, does the does the resonance of that scene in your book, um, you know, take on any new meaning or does it is it just kind of like the same as it's always been? And no, um, I mean, to me, I don't know if it takes on any new meaning. I think, um, you know, again, as someone who grew up knowing that, like, you're always supposed to obey, you know, the police and you get pulled over, just do everything right. And, you know, um, having that knowledge, I think writing about it um, so explicitly was like new for me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's weird now because we are in this sort of, you know, a, a lot of people are waking up um, that I'm surprised weren't already awake, but, you know, uh, better late than never. And there is this new consciousness. And so I'm hoping that the people, who maybe would read my book before and think like, oh, you know, this is like just happening to him or this doesn't really happen to everybody or like, this isn't something to worry about. This is just fiction. Like, know that, hey, we're telling you like, this is, this happens to a lot of people and this is something, a fear that a lot of us, you know, grow up with. And, you know, I, I guess for me, like I kind of felt like, I wondered growing up, like if, if black women felt that way too, you know, or if it was just like black men, but so that's why I wanted to also include, um, you know, a passage with Marva saying like, she had had the talk too, like she understands what it's like to have that fear of police. Um, I definitely wanted to put that in, but yeah, it's, it's a strange thing to have like this shared, you know, fear with your own community and to know that like you all had 
grown up knowing like this similar way to behave, um, even if it's, you know, an unfair. And I think growing up around um, like all white kids and white friends was like really interesting because I saw how they just didn't have the same fear, or the same concerns as me. Um, and so there's kind of a danger in feeling like uh, too safe when you grow up in that environment. Um, and knowing kind of that you're going to be shielded probably if it happens, um, if you're with enough white kids. Um, but I think, you know, growing up and getting away from that, I was definitely like reminded myself that, you know, it doesn't matter uh, if you grew up with respectability politics or, or you know, what you're, if you grew up middle class or in poverty, like at the end of the day, you're still a black person, you know, still have brown skin and, you know, the police are probably going to look at you all the same. They're not going to stop and ask where you grew up or what neighborhood you're from. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's been a, a lot of awakening on the part of a lot of people. And I wanted to show that it does happen to people of all, you know, classes and in all areas of the country. And, you know, it's a universal shared truth, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that um, I was thinking about after reading was how there are so many issues in the book that I feel like you did just such a masterful job of just showing how much was at stake in this election without mm -hmm. dwelling on the election itself. Like, you know, you never mentioned the candidates, you never mentioned who they're voting for or, you know, anything like that. But it's like, there are all of these things that are all of these threads, you know, that are running through the book that we know are things about people's lives, like the characters' lives that could possibly, you know, be improved if the selection goes the way that Marva hopes. And um, I, I found that to be a really powerful and, and subtle way of talking about uh, the, the importance of voting. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah. All right. So I have another question before we get to the Q&A, um, which is, okay, my last question. So it has to do with a minor character who I really felt drawn to. Um, <laughs> he's an elderly gentleman named Clive, who oh. is a times. <laughs> um, and he, Clive, has my favorite line in the whole book, which is, <laughs> I love to see black love. And when I read that, I just felt so happy. Like so much in this book made me so happy. And um, even though the characters have been through so much strife and suffering in their lives um, and so much struggle in that one day, and even though the novel hinges on how difficult the government makes it for black communities to vote, it really is a celebration of black love in so many forms. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to you to be releasing a book that celebrates Black love in this beautiful way um, at this particular moment that we're in. Yeah, oh, you with these questions, man, these are great. Um, I'm so glad that you mentioned Clive. Um, he was like my mom's favorite, like very minor character too. She totally <laughs> mentioned him too. He was my favorite. Um, I, I loved writing Clive. I want to hang out with Clive. I might be Clive. Um, I. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it feels like a form of you know resistance, honestly, to have a book that's like two about you know two black teenagers like fighting for justice and falling you know for each other along the way. Um, I think that it's you know really easy to focus on like black pain and all you know the horrible things that systemically um, are happening to the black community. It's it's really painful to turn on the news and, and or to really turn on Twitter, who am I kidding? Um, and see everything that's 
that's going on and, and feels like every you know minute there's a new story of some kind of violence or injustice or you know unfortunately death um so it feels like you know we definitely need books that depict the realities and i, I hope that you know my book also depicts the reality the not so great parts of you know being a marginal a member of a marginalized community um, in the country and especially at a time like this but i think that it's also so important to show um you know teenagers that like it can still work out like i think a lot of times i think about you know the 60s which i think maybe feels the closest um in the most recent history to what we're sort of experiencing now in terms of like you know like a little mini revolution um where it seems like bigger and bigger changes are happening and you know systemically people are starting to think differently um but i always wondered like gosh you know like how did anyone like how did you go about your day-to-day -day? how did you like manage how did you maintain relationships and do all that, all that stuff but it's like you just do like it's life you have to keep going on like you can still fight the good fight but you know i really think it's important to maintain your relationships and and keep your heart open i guess um you know uh because to be in the fight together like we all have to kind of you know sorry it sounds super cheesy but we all we all sort of just have to be in the fight together and like and you know open our hearts and be there for each other so you know i think um i think it feels powerful to have that out there and i, I hope that people you know in this time where we're all educating each other on you know how to be anti-racist and how to like listen to other perspectives, like really, really listen and internalize what it's like to be another person. I hope that people will pick up stories of, you know, black kids enjoy and loving each other and all of that, because it's important to show that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful to read. Thank you for, <laughs> for with yet another book. I love all of them. You have yet to write a dead. <laughs> Thank you. No, no pressure. I'm under deadline, Nina. Knock off. Yeah, <laughs> um, all right. Should we open it up to questions? Yeah. yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna turn on a light and see. I'm sorry. It's just getting dark here. Apologies. <laughs> I'm gonna see if I can do this without seeming too ghostly by not being a, an image, just so we can it just stay with y'all. But I'm here. Um, it's been great hearing these questions. Thank y'all for talking. <laughs> Um, there are a bunch of great questions. I want to start with one um, that feels connected to what you were just saying about uh, keeping the heart open. Um, one person wants to know, what do you do for self-care while writing about such personal and awful pain often painful experiences? Mm, yeah, that is tough. And especially um, right now, I'm working on a book about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. So that's, you know, not uplifting material. And it's really, again, like I was saying, just turning on the news and seeing all those images and, and videos and trying to like take care of myself while doing that. It's kind of the same with researching, um, really getting into the nitty gritty of like, you know, the starting of race riots that happened in 1919 that sort of led to this race massacre in Oklahoma um, two years later. But yeah, so I try to really take care of myself, uh, especially since I'm sort of stuck in the house and, you know, can't really see anybody. Um, I try to just let myself sort of take breaks when I need to. Um, so I should do more of it, but I like doing yoga because it's sort of like, you know, getting the mat out. It's like, you know, getting your computer out and like opening up Microsoft Word is like the hardest part for me. I feel like getting the mat out and like setting it up is the hardest part, but once I'm doing yoga, same with writing, I'm like super happy and always, always feel better after I do it. So I try to do that. Um, I also, let's see, 
I love, I mean, I love TV. I feel like TV is like my self-care, my lifeline, like my livelihood. I love television. Um, I'm trying to just let myself watch, you know, just, well, I just binged the Babysitter's Club, if that tells you where my mind is. And it just like, <laughs> it was, it was really necessary. And if you have any interest in the Babysitter's Club, um, please watch it. It's really what we need in these times. Um, I like to cook a lot. Um, I also like to bake a lot. Um, so I just feel like um, even like listening to podcasts, like just kind of like pop culture-y um, or like narrative podcast, um, like anything that sort of can like, and it, nonfiction too, for some reason really soothes me. I don't know why. Um, so I think all of those things have, have been really helpful uh, with not really being able to get out of the house, um, especially. <laughs> That's so cool that nonfiction suits you and you're writing your first book length nonfiction work right now. But yeah, it does at all. But. I, I know, no, it's not soothing at all. And the, and the research is really quite harrowing. But um, yeah, I don't know why it soothes me. I think just like I'm, you know, I was I have a journalism degree. I mean, I've worked, you know, in journalism for several like almost two decades now. And so I don't know, I think there's something about just like always getting back to the truth and like knowing that there's someone always writing the truth down, even when people don't want to hear it or want to like stifle it or censor it. Like, I think that makes me very like happy and pleased. <laughs> um, here's a question from Ari Tyson. Um, oh, hi Ari. Uh, Ari says, Brandy, a lot of writers share that every book feels like learning how to write a book again. This is your sixth book. How amazing. What has this book taught you about your process? Hi, Ari. Um, thank you. Gosh. Uh, so yeah, I think I, I feel like I say in every interview like that there gets to be a certain point in every book where I just like start literally Googling, like, how do you write a book? Like, <laughs> just like get stuck and I, I don't know how. And it feels like every book is written differently. Um, this one was really a challenge in so many ways. Um, it was dual points of view, which I had never done yet. Um, and I feel like every time I had attempted it before, I'd like failed spectacularly. Um, and it was, uh, I also wrote from a male perspective, which I had never done. Um, so wanting to sort of make those voices different, but also like, you know, make uh, Duke to me, like a believable guy, you know, in my world anyway. Um, that was a challenge of, it was a book all set in a day. So that was probably the biggest challenge for me. Um, the pacing, I, I don't outline. And so, you know, I'm with, uh, people, some people call like a pantser, like I write by the seat of my pants. Um, but which means like, I'm just like, can't people just sit around talking for 300 pages? <laughs> like I always call uh, my books like the same as the same type of movies that I love, which are like movies where I say people are just like drinking coffee and crying. Um, or my favorite, like <laughs> it's just like really good conversation. <laughs> you know, Nina, those are your favorite too, I know. <laughs> but I just love like a good meaty like conversation and just like talking about feelings and emotions. Um, but your characters have to do something I have heard uh, from my editors. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, this was a really good exercise in learning sort of like um, an especially quick pace, like how to keep the story going and how to like really move the plot forward um, at a believable, but like um, still like exciting pace. So yeah, I think I learned a lot with this one. Um, and I think it also taught me to take risks that I am now sort of applying to my future work, which is really exciting. I want to read the 300 pages of people having a good conversation. <laughs> I mean, I, 
I'm excited about this book too, but I also want to read that book from you. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll send it to you as soon as I'm done. Okay, please, I'm ready. <laughs> um, uh, Sarah, I wants to know what story would you want to read or write that doesn't yet exist? Hmm. I mean, I'm pretty private about my ideas. I will say that it's my next YA novel. Nina knows a little bit about it. Um, yeah, I can't say anything about that, but it is. it will be coming to you in a couple of years and hopefully it will be, I would assume it will be announced by the end of this year. Um, but that is, um, I'm really excited about that idea and just like sort of the structure of the way I'm playing with it. So sorry for the vague answer, but uh, stay tuned, you will learn more soon. <laughs> totally, totally fair. Um, here's another craft question to tack back in that direction. Uh, Alana Arnold wants to know, from a writer's perspective, what are the challenges and benefits of structuring a book in a dual point of view? Oh, hi, Alana K. Arnold. Um, oh, gosh, that is a great question, because I'm still sort of like, you know, how did I do that? But I think for me, it was um, really like maybe two main things, um, really making sure that their voices stood out. So. You know, I think voice is such a weird and hard thing for writers because you always hear about like voice, like that's what makes the story special and that's what we love and that's what it's going to set you apart. But then it's like, well, what happens if I write two different characters? Is that two different voices? Like, is it still my voice? Um, so I think both Marva and Duke sound a lot like me. Um, but I think that, sorry, I'm getting an echo. I don't know if you guys are getting an echo from these. Okay. Um, I think that for me, it was like kind of going really deep and being like thinking about word choice and trying to be consistent with like how they would speak to each other. Like, you know, Duke would use certain phrases or terms, but Marva wouldn't, um, especially like because their personalities were so um, opposite that that sort of helped with that. Um, and then, I don't know, with the other part, I think it was sort of keeping that story flow. So making sure, you know, especially since it is like so tightly compacted into that one day and the chapters were almost always just moving from minute to minute. So you didn't get a really long break in there, um, making sure that the chapters flowed well and that you didn't go from one chapter and be like, wait a minute, what were they doing? Or like, where were they? Um, so again, then that comes with the outlining and sort of the tight plotting, um, I think also helped make that possible. Wow, never thought about that before. Thanks, Alana. <laughs> um, here's a, this is sort of adapted from a, a someone's question. I'm curious if, obviously the voting is super important um, activity and way of participating in our society. Um, are there other ways, especially for young people of participating and working to change our communities that you would recommend or mention or what else should, what else should young people be thinking about? Yeah, I love that question. Um, so in the book, Marva talks about the things she was doing before. So she was canvassing. Um, there's a really great book that's out this year. Uh, I think it came out in February or January. It's called Yes, No, Maybe So. And that's by Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed. And it's a YA novel. Um, it's about two teens who, it's quite similar sort of in theme. Um, it's two teens who meet and sort of fall for each other, uh, but it's not set in one day, uh, but it's dual perspective. And um, they meet, um, they sort of, well, I won't get too far into the plot to spoil it. It's really great. But they um, start canvassing together. Um, so that's sort of their, their thing that they can do. Um, because I don't 
think they're old enough to vote in the election in the book yet. They're 17. Um, so um, canvassing, you know, um, phone banking, text banking, if you don't mind the phone, you know, in addition to phone banking, you can call your representatives and, you know, talk about issues that are affecting, you know, your community. Um, postcards are like a thing you can, there's like, you know, um, postcard campaigns you can get involved with and get, you know, Set on the postcard mailing system, um, you know, even protests. Like I see people taking their kids to protests, which I think is awesome. Like growing up in really conservative town in Missouri in the nineties, I literally didn't even think people still protested. Like I just thought it was something that happened in like, you know, from like 1960 to 1968. And then it was just like over. <laughs> yeah, like there's places where people are protesting literally every day, like probably San Francisco, Nina, I'm assuming there's probably even when there's not like global unrest, there's probably people protesting something every day um so yeah i think just making your voice heard even if it's just like talking to um a friend and tell, telling them about the importance of the issues and paying attention and um so i'm someone who doesn't really go to protests because like marva says in the book like she gets too um, upset at the counter protesters um that would be me. So I don't go to protests, <laughs> but I have a pretty loud voice um, and I'm not afraid of, as that's one of the kind of the problems. I'm not afraid of speaking up, um, you know, in real life to people. And I'm just, you know, I don't court it, but I'm not afraid of confrontation. So I am the person who will explain to someone why something is wrong or, you know, take them to task over something they said that was offensive. Or I just think there's so many ways that you can use your voice. And so, if, you know, you don't want to speak to people. You can do things from your computer or from your home, you know. Um, and if you don't want to do that, if you're more active, you can get out, um, you know, and if you're over 18, you can vote. So I just hope that there's a lot of things that um, that teens and, and younger people can get involved in and, and that their voice matters from like a super young age. I also want to add in your book, Duke's little sister is very politically active, even though she can't vote oh. yet. That's true. Thank you. I always forget about one of my other favorite characters, Ida, his little sister. Yeah, she's like 14, I think. Um, and she, I mean, I'm not suggesting anybody do this, but you know, she participates in like some civil, civilly disobedient acts and um, you know, uh, that's her choice. And, but yeah, she is super politically active and she's in like a social justice club at her school, which I hope that, I really hope those exist at schools. I would imagine if they don't, like that's something that's gonna start becoming more prevalent. Um, so yeah, thank you for reminding me of Ida, you know. Yeah. Um, well, maybe I'll bring us home with a combination of two questions. Um, one is we have an 11 year old listening to this talk with a parent, it seems like, and she wants to know if the voting booth is appropriate for kids her age. She watches PG-13 movies with us and we don't care about swearing. She has also gone to protests. Uh, and the other question that's connected to that is um, about YA versus middle grade books. I know your last book um, was a middle grade book. Which do you prefer to write? Do you have a preference? Will you be writing more middle grade? Um, and Stacey Ratner says, I love this book because I'm an elementary school librarian. I hope the answer is yes. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I'm so happy that there is an 11 year old viewer watching this. And I made that face because I was worried that I had cursed um, too much. So <laughs> glad you don't care about that. Um, yeah, I would say that this book would really probably then be appropriate if you're watching like um, PG-13 movies. I would say this is the most um, PG-13, you know, appropriate of, of my YA books. Um, I, I've heard from several middle school uh, teachers that they're putting it, you know, in their classrooms. Um, so I think I, I feel pretty, I usually say make your own choice, but I feel pretty confident saying that this, this would be appropriate. Um, I agree. If you read, 
Okay, good. And I, I hope you like it. Um, and yeah, so middle grade. Um, yeah, I loved writing middle grade. So I wrote about, um, I wrote The Only Black Girls in Town, which came out in March. And it's about two 12 year olds. So they're like rising seventh graders. They start seventh grade in the store in the at the beginning of the book. Um, I loved writing middle grade. Um, like I said, my YA tends to be a little, you know, I feel like all YA is kind of gritty now, but mine tends to be a little gritty, a little, little edgy, as I used to say. And um, it was nice to sort of just write a book about friendship um, and just sort of like crushes that, you know, weren't going to end your world if <laughs> it didn't work out. Um, and just like growing up and puberty and all of that I found like really fun to write about, but also like being able to focus on the family because you know you are spending more time with your family because you're more dependent on your parents or parents or guardians um, when you are 12. Um, and it just felt like really cozy. Um, I, the writing wise, at first I was too like worried about trying to get the voice right. Uh, but once I settled into that, it felt really natural. And I just sort of thought about being 12 and like the things that were big to me back then because I think a lot of people forget that, um, you know, even my mom, when she read my middle grade, she was like, wow, I forgot what being 12 was like. And I wanted to be like, did you forget about like the huge fight I had at the summer after sixth grade with like three of my friends and it was just like pure drama for three months. Um, so yeah, but I felt like overall it was just super cozy and I love um, being able to write for a younger age group too. Like, you know, those are the books that I loved when I was growing up and that really made me want to be a writer. Uh, like I mentioned, The Babysitter's Club. I feel like I never shout out The Babysitter's Club enough as being like such an inspiration for me. But I was like texting Nina the other night. I was like, oh my God, I'm watching this show. And it's just like, bringing me back to my childhood of reading those books. And just like, I was just so obsessed with those books and like, you know, that age. And I just, I love it. So um, yes, they're very, hopefully I will be able to tell you more about um, my next middle grade, but I am working on something and I'm super excited about it. And I'm sorry for all the secretive talk, but I promise when I can shout things, I will. <laughs> um, I'm gonna come back as a face to say goodbye. Um, thank you all so, so much. Y'all, what a pleasure to have Brandy Colbert and Nina LaCour with us today. Um, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk. And it's so exciting. The voting booth is out today, today, today. So you can order it from Skylight Books or from your local bookstore. Um, as you've heard, it's like the book we want, the book we need. Um, so <laughs> thank you for thank you for sharing it with us. Um, thank you both for the conversation and the thoughtfulness. And um, it's been such a pleasure having you. We hope to see Thanks. you again soon. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Nina. Thank, Thank you, Skylight. You <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.